Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 4, The Soldier's Reckoning. So we left off last week with the fall of Robespierre, the Thermidorian reaction, the counter-purge of most of the Jacobin factions throughout France, and the formation of the French Directory. Now my intention for the last two episodes was, obviously, to give us a good foundation and background as to how Napoleon was able to come onto the scene the way that he did. After all, Napoleon, at his core, was a committed revolutionary, and that's something we're going to dive into over the next few episodes. But before we get back to the main narrative, I did want to do a quick reflection on the first part of the French Revolution up to the coup of Nine Thermidor, as I feel that we left off last week with so much information, it was tough to do a proper analysis. So I decided to save it for today as a good way to segue back into our story and introduce Napoleon the soldier. The French Revolution in its entirety is one of the most important events in human history, full stop. As an American, selfishly, I think it was a further validation of the Enlightenment principles espoused in the American War of Independence, and it can be said it was actually a continuation of that revolution just on European soil, philosophically speaking. The ideas of individual liberty, right to property, and self-determination under a just legal system, largely for white male property owners, of course, but ideas that were fundamentally not present in Europe for much of the history up until that time. And indeed, at its core, the French Revolution was a grand social experiment in overturning the established conservative order by replacing it with an egalitarian and perhaps proto-socialist one. But the effects and long-term impact of the revolution have often been split among ideological lines. Many conservative philosophers, like Edmund Burke, for example, believed that it was the product of a few radicals who brainwashed the masses into believing a corrupt social structure that was, in his mind, non-existent. But on the other hand, Karl Marx's later writings were heavily influenced by the revolution, believing that the values it espoused were fundamental to understanding the human social evolution and the ideal early model for a socialist society. And so to many later socialists, the revolution was viewed through the lens of class struggle, the very embodiment of the workers rising up to rebel against a bourgeoisie hierarchy. And this is true to some extent. Remember, during the initial phases of the revolution, the tennis court oath, the fall of the Bastille, really up until the Women's March on Versailles, the early revolution was indeed a bourgeois-led revolution. It wasn't until food became scarce and the economy worsened in 1791 to 92 that we really saw the sans-culotte, that is to say the proletariat, and other lower classes join in and to some extent take over the revolution. And among the revolutionaries themselves, there was a constant struggle between competing classes and who could implement change. We can see this in the fight for constitutional rights. Who would be able to vote? Who would be counted as a citizen? All of these questions really harken back, or rather forward, to a complex class struggle that is, to this point, had little precedent in modern history. But yet perhaps the most profound changes that happened with the French Revolution are how France is viewed both then and now. The country unquestionably underwent a fundamental transformation in self-identity, culture, value of the individual, and near elimination of the social stratification that 
had come to define its entire history. Indeed, even after the restoration of the Burman monarchy after Waterloo, the citizenry had gone through two generations of revolutionary ideals that it was impossible to go back to the ways of the Ancien Regime. King Louis XVIII had to really understand this. His successor and brother, King Charles X, the former Comte d'Artois, would not, leading to his own ouster and exile in London. And even over 230 years after the fall of the Bastille, France still has revolutionary remnants. The tricolor is the flag of France. La Marseillaise is its national anthem, and its national motto, along with Haiti's, Liberté, Egalité, Fraternité, is perhaps the most famous of the revolution's many slogans. But while the revolution's legacy is still felt even to this day around the world, in this episode, we're going to go back to before it even began. Because at long last, it's time to get back to the main actor of our story, a young, bright-eyed recruit waiting to make a mark on the world that's about to explode. Finally, enter stage left, young Napoleon Bonaparte. It surely has. When we last left young Bonaparte, he had just requested leave to go back to Corsica for the first time since he was sent away to mainland France for schooling. We mentioned he had requested leave for five months and ended up staying for over a year, a habit he would continue over the course of the first few years of the revolution. Now, much of this can be attributed to his still loyalist roots to the Corsican cause, but as events began to unfold, his time on the island became less of a family reunion and more of a three-way struggle between revolutionary forces, royalist sympathizers, and Corsican nationalist freedom fighters. Now, a year before the revolution began, Napoleon returned to France to continue his artillery training. He had classes for up to nine hours a week and learning the newest artillery strategies as well as how to prepare small arms and makeshift gunpowder. He would profess, quote, there is nothing in the military profession I cannot do for myself. If there is no one to make gunpowder, I know how to make it. Gun carriages, I know how to construct them. If it is founding a cannon, I know that. Or if the details of tactics must be taught, I can teach them. His self-sufficiency and preparedness was evident amongst his superiors, and he was given command of 200 men to help test the feasibility of firing explosive shells from heavy cannons instead of small mortars, a novel technique for the time. He was praised for the testing and his leadership, as well as for his emphasis on offensive tactics, something which would come to define his military strategies in the future. Napoleon here also begins to show more of his personal philosophies on how government should be administered. As the tense situation leading up to the Estates General was beginning to take shape, Napoleon wrote in a draft of his Dissertation sur l'autorité royale that military authority was a preferable form of government when compared to a monarchy, and that there were, quote, very few kings who would not deserve to be dethroned. A young, rising Jacobin recruit, perhaps? Well, we'll get to that a little bit later. He never ended up publishing the pieces. When he wrote it, King Louis XVI had just fired his finance minister, Brienne, and Napoleon had intended the work to be dedicated to Brienne, and when news arrived of his dismissal, Napoleon decided against it for fear of reprisal. Even having done so without Brienne's sacking likely would have led to some sort of punishment for Napoleon, as writing something so brash as to call for the removal of any king would have been sacrosanct even in the tenuous times leading up to the revolution. But Napoleon's thinking of a kingless Europe was hardly novel for the day, as I'm sure we all remember from the previous two episodes. Indeed, as the financial situation in France worsened and its true severity became known to the general public, Napoleon would be deployed to Soar in February of 1789 to put down a large riot in which local peasants had killed two merchants who they suspected of hoarding grain. Now, if you remember from episode two, the winter of 1788-89 was one of the worst on record and led to severe famine in France, particularly in the countryside. 
And Napoleon's regiment was ordered to quell the violence, and this uprising was one of the first times Napoleon would see combat as a young soldier. And as I mentioned in episode one, Napoleon hated the idea of mob mentality. But upon seeing the desperation in the eyes of the protesting peasants, it was difficult for him not to empathize with their plight. While he did his duty effectively, impressing his senior officers in the process, Napoleon got his first look at the revolution that was about to embroil all of France and indeed all of Europe. He would later write that the, quote, French people were wounded in their dearest interests. The nobility and the clergy humiliated them with their pride and privileges. The people suffered under this weight for a long time, but finally wanted to shake off the yoke. Now, interestingly, Napoleon's initial experience with the revolution would be a combination of misjudgment, optimism, and internal conflict. As the Estates General were called in May of 1789 and negotiations ended up breaking down, Napoleon believed the situation would only be temporary. In Paris during the storming of the Bastille and even helping to put down makeshift riots and all of the chaos, Napoleon completely miscalculated the opening salvos of the revolution. Staying true to his belief in the idea that mob rule was only as powerful as the professional soldiers called to put them down, he wrote to his brother Joseph a week after the Bastille fell that, quote, calm will return. In a month, there will no longer be a question of anything. But we know that on the contrary, there were so many questions, and not just among the French revolutionaries. Because as we mentioned in the first episode, Napoleon was still fighting internally about which side he needed to swear loyalty to, France or his native Corsica. And amid all of the chaos on the mainland, Napoleon saw a golden opportunity for Corsica to break free of French rule, believing that they would be too occupied with the situation in Paris to care about some semi-autonomous island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Now, there is some irony, of course, in Napoleon welcoming the revolution. Remember, despite being a foreigner, Napoleon was still technically a minor noble, which put his family, at least by social standing standards, at direct odds with the revolution's principles. But Napoleon, as we've mentioned before, is a man of many colors, a living embodiment of contradictions. Yes, he was a nobleman, but he embraced the revolution on its ideals of the Enlightenment. He supported weakening of a clergy that he saw as corrupt and antithetical to the catechism it supposedly preached. And then there was the monarchy. He fawned over the revolution's attempts to weaken a monarchy for which he had little respect for and likely had much personal hatred towards. Still, even though he personally supported the weakening of the monarchy, one of the few officers in the French military to do so, might I add, Napoleon kept his personal beliefs to himself and carried out his military assignments as instructed. He helped to quell further food riots in Auxon and Valence, even though many of his regiment's soldiers defected and joined the rioters in support of the revolution. Now, in hindsight, this would play into Napoleon's advancement as the revolution progressed. As more and more soldiers defected the revolutionary cause, the majority of the officer corps, all of whom were of noble birth, became emigres, opening up leadership positions among officers who would be able to attain them via ability rather than of nobility. Now, it was during this time that Napoleon as a young 20-year-old, would also become an adherent to our old friends, the Society of the Friends of the Constitution, commonly known as the Jacobins. Now, while not nearly as radical as many of its more famous members, Napoleon would bring its principal ideas back home with him to Corsica, and after he was granted another leave in August of 1789, he would stay there for a year and a half. And it was during this time, and during this latest stay, that his internal struggle of loyalty would manifest itself in unbeknownst to him, or the world around him, changed the course of history. Because as we'll see, Corsica was unable to simply be a bystander as the revolution unfolded. Indeed, like much of the provincial regions of France, she too would be embroiled in conflicts and power struggles over which side offered the best outcome for the island. 
Now, historically, Corsica was split among the rivalries of the rural communities and the urban centers, particularly Ajaccio. But these lines became blurred when it came to the Catholic Church and are now exiled, for the first time, friend Pasquale Paoli. You see, Corsica, still only a generation removed from her Genoese roots, was still fervently Catholic, and the rumors swirling around the island of a bunch of radical revolutionaries in Paris essentially banning the Catholic Church did not exactly sit well with the local population, especially in the more rural parts of the island. Deep down, it seemed as though keeping the status quo in Corsica was going to be best for everyone involved. But that was going to be impossible, because the National Assembly decided to make Corsica an official department of France, replacing her long-held territorial status. It was no longer enough for her to sit idly on the sideline. She needed to pick a side, and all she would need was a little nudge. And as it just so happens, Napoleon was making his way over to the island on his quote-unquote medical leave, and he thought it would be best for everyone if he just inserted himself right into the middle of all this confusion. Still likely drunk off of all the revolutionary fervor from the mainland, Napoleon arrived in Ajaccio, joined his older brother Joseph and younger brother Lucien, and urged the islanders to join the revolutionary cause. After all, how could they support a monarchy that had only decades before invaded their homeland and taken their freedoms away? Now, Napoleon quickly encouraged the citizens of Corsica to fly the tricolor, wear the revolutionary cockade, and to form their own national guard, which he did personally in the Corsican volunteers. Now, Napoleon did enjoy local support, at least tepidly, but if the revolution meant having a greater French presence on the island, you can bet that this support would quickly dissipate. And indeed, as news reached London that Corsica was made a French department, Paoli, living there while still exiled from the Bourbon monarchy, denounced the move as yet another power grab by a foreign power, generally, and Paris specifically. Now it should be noted that the French contingent on the island were still royalist loyals. We're only six months removed from the Bastille falling, so the monarchy, while despised, still yielded great authority and respect, especially outside of Paris. The governor of Corsica was appointed by the Bourbons, and you can probably assume that he was none too pleased that some French-trained Corsican soldier was coming back from the mainland looking to spread that chaos on this tranquil island like some upstart virus. And indeed, after Napoleon founded the Volunteers, the governor, at this point furious, and also likely fearful of a repeat of what happened in Paris, banned the Volunteers from meeting and labeled many Jacobin-leaning clubs on the island as seditious, forcing them into the underground. Now, Napoleon, never one to be deterred, used this as an opportunity to align himself more closely with France, gaining a, an in with the inner circle of the burgeoning Republican establishment. Aligning himself with Corsica's deputy of the National Assembly, Antoine Christophe Salicetti, Napoleon denounced the Corsican government as, quote, not sufficiently revolutionary, and began to outline how he could make the movement more palatable to the general population. Now, he knew, as did Salicetti, that this would inevitably drive a further wedge between them and Paoli if he were ever able to return. Spoiler alert, he does. But Paoli was still a thousand miles away in exile, and decisions needed to be made now as the revolution was beginning to enter its first chaotic Now, I should note, while Napoleon did extol his revolutionary views on the island and clearly wanted the island to follow in the footsteps of the National Assembly, he did so because he still believed it was the best path forward for Corsica to achieve her own autonomy. To further validate this point, Napoleon used his year-and-a-half-long stay on the island to write and rewrite his histories of Corsica, sending them back to France to Enlightenment writer the Abbe Reynald, whose famous Histoire de deux was a major influence on many of the revolutionaries. Violent, tragic, and at times depressing, Napoleon's writings again espouse a young man conflicted on his intentions and inner leanings. 
And I've always thought personally that Napoleon during this time likely saw the revolution as an opportunity not just for Corsica and for France, but for humanity itself to reestablish the perceived order of things. Yes, that is what the Enlightenment era taught its subscribers, but I truly believe that Napoleon, as an ardent Corsican nationalist, likely saw this entire episode, at least early on, as an opportunity for people to enter into a new world. That it was France taking the initiative was besides the point. The spark needed to come from somewhere. It just so happened that it came from the country that historically oppressed Corsica. But was it the same France as it had been before? That was at the heart of the conflict that was brewing deep inside the young Bonaparte. And this conflict extended far past the national identity and philosophy that Napoleon held. Religiously, it would also come to be a source of conflict. Now, we'll expand on Napoleon's religious views in later episodes, but it can be safe to say that Napoleon, while raised in a deeply Catholic household by a devoutly Catholic mother, really had no love loss for the church when they were made to abide by the civil constitution in 1790, requiring, if you remember from episode 2, that non-juring priests swear an oath of allegiance to France. He'd always seen the church in lockstep with the monarchy. Two peas in the same corrupt pod, one no less tyrannical than the other. Corsicans, on the other hand, however didn't exactly see it that way. Now, Napoleon and his brothers all promoted the civil constitution and issued pamphlets around the island, encouraging its implementation. Now, while there were some liberal-minded thinkers in the capital of Ayaccio, most of the island was fervently Catholic, and Napoleon and Joseph were nearly lynched by a mob for their writings when they passed by a religious procession in Ayaccio in 1790 after they were identified by some members of the mob, being saved only by a local bandit, who would be rewarded for this when Napoleon became consul nearly 10 years later. A close call that, again, would have changed the course of history, but Napoleon and Joseph escaped. And while their borderline atheist views would have been enough to get them killed, the island would soon be concerned with another major event that was enough to sideline its hatred for the Bonapartes, the return of Pasquale Paoli. Now Paoli, exiled in Britain for the last 22 years, was allowed to return to Corsica by the National Assembly. I often wonder what his reaction must have been when he got that news, especially after he denounced their views earlier in the revolution. But immediately appointed as the leader of Corsica's assembly in the National Guard, Paoli received a glowing reception upon his return, including by the Bonapartes, who were eager to join his vision of what he had planned for Corsica's immediate future. But if you remember from the end of episode one, the Bonapartes received little respect from Paoli despite all of their doting. Seen by Paoli as collaborators with the French invasion prior to his exile, the Bonapartes in general, and Napoleon specifically, were always kept at arm's length from Paoli. And while I'm sure Paoli must have admired the rise that Napoleon had to this point in his life, his disdain for their father was enough for him to not want his family's loyalty. And in the more immediate term, this kept Napoleon, likely due to the influence of Paoli, from gaining leadership positions in the island's National Guard. He famously wrote, quote, The city is full of bad citizens. You have no idea of their craziness and meanness. And as political situation was made worse after Corsica was given near complete autonomy over their governance and administration by the National Assembly in August of 1790, meaning that Napoleon would need to go around the island's political landscape alone, without the help from his contacts back in France. Nevertheless, he welcomed the news and famously proclaimed that, quote, the sea no longer separates us. Vive la nation. Vive Paoli. Vive Mirabeau, in reference to the Comte de Mirabeau, who had championed the new Corsican policy. And even with his local political and military ambitions stymied, Napoleon remained loyal to the man who he grew up idolizing. But unsurprisingly, it was to no avail. Paoli had no interest in the young man, 
And as Napoleon became more cognizant of this fact, he began to rewrite histories of how Paoli became influenced by external factors in his fight for Corsican independence, trying to style the island in a British fashion, according to Napoleon, whereas the young Bonaparte emanating in Revolution styled the French one, of course. In short, he basically labeled Paoli a traitor to Corsica. And indeed, while Paoli had little time to read the manuscript and likely killed any chances of having it widely published, it displayed what had been simmering for months, that Napoleon, who grew up wanting nothing more than Paoli's approbation and admiration, would never be loyal to Paoli again. And over the next three years, the relationship slowly but completely fell out. And while Napoleon would write glowingly of Paoli later in life, Paoli would never reciprocate the same respect. Keep in mind, during all this, Napoleon was still on technical medical leave. Due to return to France in October of 1790, he wouldn't set foot on the mainland until February of 1791. Now again, in most times, this would have likely warranted a court-martial, demotion, or perhaps even worse. But the army, now weary of surrounding countries eyeing up a potential intervention on behalf of King Louis XVI and with many former officers fleeing the country as emigres, they needed to keep as many men loyal as was possible. So when Napoleon returned, instead of punishment, he received the back pay and was able to pay for schooling for his youngest brother, Joseph. In June, he was promoted to lieutenant and sent away with the 4th Regiment to the Artillery of Valence, just in time for the royal family to be captured in Varennes, trying to flee the country to the safety of Austria. Now, as you remember from the previous episode, the royal family returned to Paris to eerie ominous silence, confirming what most of the revolutionaries had already suspected. The rest of the population were now fully aware of their foreign plot to thwart the revolution. And Napoleon, by this point, a Jacobin at his posted location in Valence, denounced the move and swore his allegiance to the revolution. At a celebration for the second anniversary of the fall of Bastille, Napoleon toasted the crowd, who were petitioning the king to be put on trial. He said, quote, To the patriots of Auxon, this country is full of zeal and fire. Consider this, as if it weren't already known by now, as his crossing of the Rubicon. But Napoleon was eager to continue his revolutionary campaign in Corsica. So, he requested additional leave from his regiment. Denied multiple times, he persisted until it was ultimately granted with a provision that it returned by January of 1792, or he would be labeled a deserter and stripped of his rank. He agreed, then returned to Corsica at the beginning of autumn, 1791. Now, Napoleon, despite having been away for less than a year, returned to a chaotic scene in Corsica. When he left, there was relative unity with Paoli's return, but upon stepping foot back in the capital, Napoleon found his country in turmoil. Over 100 murders had taken place since the start of the French Revolution, and tax collection was unable to proceed due to the worsening political situation. But this had the added effect of bringing down the island's economy. Now, if we recall from episode one, Napoleon's father had only died six years earlier, so he was still trying to salvage the financial woes his father Carlo left behind. But when his great-uncle died, Napoleon inherited his family fortune. It was now able to become one of the wealthiest men in Corsica paying off the remaining debts and using this money to obtain, see, bribe, his way to the rank of lieutenant colonel in the Corsican National Guard. Further dividing the two men, Paoli saw the corruption as morally wrong and contested the promotion, but was denied by the island's convention. I wonder how they came to that conclusion. 
But Napoleon would use his newfound position, with its accompanying authority, to further his military and political aspirations on the island. He enjoyed it so much, he once again passed his deadline to return to mainland France and was, indeed, declared a deserter. He wouldn't have to wait long, though, for that designation to be redacted. Because speaking of the mainland, the situation in France was getting dire. Again, as you'll recall from episode two, early 1792 was right in the middle of one of the worst winters on record and severe food shortages were leading to riots across the country. This was coupled with the first coalition forces making their intentions known about where they wanted the revolution to go. And with war on the horizon, the rest of France was beginning to mobilize not just against enemies from the outside, but within as well. And Corsica was no different. So with the threat of war looming, the politics of Corsica became increasingly radical. Assembly Deputy Salicetti ordered the suppression of ancient churches and monasteries on the island's biggest cities, with any money collected from them to go back to Paris in preparation for the war funds. Now, to say this move was unpopular amongst the population would be an all-time understatement. The Catholic majority of Corsica broke out in a rioting, and on Easter Sunday of 1792, fighting broke out in Hayaccio between the rioters and Napoleon's National Guardsmen. Now, the street battles continued for a few days, but Napoleon, in a preview of what was to come in future campaigns, tried desperately to seize the city's citadel, even fighting against regular French soldiers to do so. He was unsuccessful, and further worse, the commander of the citadel, Colonel Maillard, wrote a report that essentially accused Napoleon of treason against France. Now, Paoli, ironically, sided with the French colonel, mostly because he hated the idea of some upstart radical Jacobin soldier trying to take command of his island. And so Paoli ordered Napoleon to leave Ayaccio, which he did. Disappointed, and knowing he had no other alternative, he returned to France. Now, Napoleon was in a precarious situation because while it would have been a likely death sentence to stay on Corsica, returning to his regiment in Valence would have probably equaled the same fate. He was only months earlier declared a deserter, after all. So, instead, he decided to head to Paris and try his luck with the Revolutionary War Council because just as he was headed for France, the French army had declared war on Austria and Prussia in April of 1792 to officially kick off the War of the First Coalition. His decision was a brilliant one. First off, while Colonel Maillard had labeled Napoleon a traitor to France, his report was, like many at the time, lost under a pile of more pressing matters, see impending invasion of the Austro-Prussian armies. So when Napoleon reached Paris, despite finding their war ministry in complete turmoil, he was able to ask for and incredibly receive, a promotion to captain and a year's worth of back pay. The stones on this man. And while Napoleon was unimpressed with many of the revolution's leaders, writing to his brother Joseph back in Corsica that, quote, everyone pursues his own interests and searches to gain his own ends by dint of ambition. One pities those who have the misfortune to play a part in public affairs. But he did little to stop much of the terror that was to follow. And indeed, by this point, if it was not made clear enough already, his full-fledged Jacobinism was on display for all to see, and he believed that it would be the side who would come out on top on the rest of the revolution. But again, Napoleon was a man of contradictions. He was in Paris when the crowd stormed the Tuileries Palace in June of 1792 and forced the royal family to choose which cockade they wanted to wear. Remember, revolutionary tricolor or bourbon white. Following the crowd and watching the events as they unfolded, Napoleon was mystified at how weak the king acted in front of his subjects. Yes, he had little respect for the institution, but he at least wanted to see some form of dignity from a sitting monarch. It was this event, above all others, that led 
for him to lose what little respect he had left for the Bourbon throne. He said, quote, what madness? How could they allow that rabble to enter? Why did they not try to sweep away four or five hundred of them with cannon? Then the rest would take themselves off very quickly. But the masses did not take off. Instead, as the Austrians and Prussians began their advance into France, the mobs again returned, killed the Swiss guards, and arrested the royal family and suspended the monarchy. Watching the scene from a nearby house, Napoleon cried out, quote, Vive la nation! Dragging them out of the Tuileries, there was much symbolism in this one. One monarchy was being let out, while another would enter only a short decade later. And as the summer turned to fall, Napoleon would witness the September massacres as the mob murdered anyone they suspected of being a monarchist kind of revolutionary. While there's no evidence that Napoleon participated in the massacres himself, he certainly condoned them, believing them to be a battle against the foreign treachery seen throughout revolutionary France. He said, quote, I think the massacres of September may have produced a powerful effect on the men of the invading armies. In one moment, they saw a whole population rising up against them. France would follow by declaring itself a republic and shock the rest of Europe by winning the Battle of Valmy, proving its upstart revolution could defend itself against the foreign coalition. This didn't just inspire the French people, it inspired Napoleon too. After the massacres concluded, Napoleon would return to Corsica for what would turn out to be one of the last times in his life. While Corsica was not nearly in as much chaos as it had been on his previous return, Napoleon found the island to be far more anti-French than before largely due to the revolution's anti-clerical policies, but also because of the massacres the month before, which, as you'll recall, resulted in the murders of hundreds of Catholic priests. Napoleon was undeterred. He believed the best path forward was for Corsica to continue being a French province, at this point essentially ceasing to be a Corsican nationalist altogether. It should be noted that this wasn't because he was an ardent lover of France or that he hated his home country. It was just a simple case of things having changed in both his life and that of the political situation. He could no longer deny his revolutionary leanings and how he wanted them instilled on Corsica. But Corsica did not want them instilled on her. Now during this time, there were several power struggles going on amongst the most powerful family clans on the island. Paoli, the most influential of the lot, was firmly opposed to the newly founded republic, given their anti-Catholic policies, and he refused to even so much as acknowledge the Bonaparte clan. This struggle reached its climax when in January of 1793, France decapitated Louis XVI and the creation of the Committee of Public Safety was established. Now, while Napoleon would, years later, admit that the killing of Louis was a tactical error that invited the wrath of other European monarchies on France, specifically Britons, he welcomed it at the time. And with the levee en masse now installed to meet this wrath head-on, Napoleon, as had been his lifelong dream, was now to receive his first significant military command. As France was concerned with her neighbors invading, she moved to defend her flanks and strike the first blows in order to hinder any potential invasions from other nations, such as Spain to the southwest and the Pyrenees, and the Kingdom of Piedmont Sardinia to its southeast. Napoleon, therefore, was tasked to lead an artillery section of an 1,800-men Corsican expeditionary force to help, quote-unquote, liberate, see, occupy, three small Sardinian islands with the help of many of his Corsican countrymen. They were San Stefano, La Maddalena, and Caprera. Under the leadership of Paoli's nephew, Pierre de Cesare Rocca, San Stefano fell in five days and was completely occupied. Napoleon, understanding the strategic position they were in, set up his cannons to fire upon the other islands who were only a few hundred yards away, readying for a siege. But unfortunately for Napoleon, 
many of the other members of the regiment were not nearly as experienced or educated enough on military strategy or what to do with faced with actual combat. When the artillery barrages began, most of the Corsican soldiers in the regiment, most of them new conscripts, began to understand the reality of the situation that they were in, terrified at the thought of having to lay siege to an island whose soldiers were fighting to the death to defend it. As a result, and nearly in an instant, many of the men mutinied and the mission had to be aborted. Napoleon, mystified at what he was witnessing, tossed his cannon into the sea and the group returned to Corsica. His first real combat experience with the command ended in utter humiliation. But the experience, while an abject failure, proved to be instrumental in shaping how Napoleon would come to run his armies in the coming future. Right from the onset of the expedition, Napoleon knew that the mission was undermanned, was limited in its supplies, and had poor logistics. And so drawing on this, he would always ensure to have these vital components accounted for when embarking on his campaigns. He knew the difficulty in fighting in an army with little to eat, or really little to wear, and so he didn't want his soldiers to suffer the same fate. He said, quote, it was the hope of success that sustained me. He wanted to ensure that it would be the guarantee of success that would sustain his soldiers moving forward. Meanwhile, it should not be lost in all of this that a large reason the mission failed was Pauli had severely underestimated the fighting force needed, or rather just did not care enough to want to sufficiently fund it. Indeed, it was becoming increasingly clear that Pauli was slowly moving away from the French and closer to the British, who, while Protestant, were at least conservative enough in wanting to end the madness of purging the Catholic Church. Much like what we saw in the Vendée, Corsica just could not stand this whole civil oath, cult of reason, atheist business. And if aligning with Britain meant that that's what it took to get this wretched stench off the island, then so be it. God save the king. In April of 1793, the Fissure and the Paoli Bonaparte relationship had irreparably ruptured. After it became clear that the Montagnards would be the dominant ruling party in the convention, essentially assuring a reign of radicalism, there really was no turning back between the two families. In May, Pauli loyalists stormed the Bonaparte estate, ransacked it, and outlawed the family. Despite some last-ditch attempts at retaking Ajaccio, Napoleon, his mother, Leticia, and his siblings all departed for France on June 11, 1793. 275 years of Bonaparte residency on the island came to an end. Napoleon's ally Salicetti fled as well, knowing that their Jacobin visions for the island went the way of the trade winds. By July, Paoli had sworn allegiance to King George III of Britain, and for our American listeners, yes, that King George III, and Corsica had officially become a rogue province in France's ever-changing geopolitical landscape. It is a cruel irony that Napoleon and Paoli's relationship would end this way. Napoleon having looked up to and respected this man since birth, now sees him swear allegiance to the very country that Napoleon would bring to the battlefields of history only years later. But it's tragic as well, is it not? I feel as though Napoleon had wanted nothing more than the respect of this man, to be given the chance to prove he wasn't his father, that he was, after all, a loyal, blue-blooded Corsican. But it was not to be, and it never would be again. The two men would never see each other again in their lives. And as we mentioned in episode one, Paoli would die in 1807, in exile, in London, bitter to the end at never being able to achieve the goal he had of Corsican independence. Meanwhile, as he took his last breaths, Paoli could watch from across the channel as Napoleon was at his zenith, redrawing the map of continental Europe. Napoleon would set foot on Corsica only once more in his life, on his return from the Egypt expedition, which we'll be covering here in the next few weeks. 
but he never truly shook his homeland free. His Corsican accent stayed with him for the rest of his life, and he was always viewed as a foreigner in the French military, at least if you were to ask the coalition propagandists. But Napoleon knew that moving forward, his goals for Corsica were dead. He would forge his future in France for the French. And just in time. Because in a few short months, Napoleon would be involved in the fight that truly, really, made him a household name in revolutionary France and in Europe. And next week, we'll talk about that fight as Napoleon gears up to enter the history books with his brilliant plan at the Siege of Toulon.